Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to another edition of Faith Unaltered. I'm your host, David Russell, and look, we have our co-host, Tyler Fowler, back. He is What's here up? for one night only this month, so if you have any questions and want to give him some love and send him some love, send it our way. Um, I'm also joined with my buddy, Dale Glover, my favorite Canadian, um, and got a special guest, Ben Watkins, on again. What's up, Ben? Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Man, thanks for being on. It's an honor to have you again, man. Um, we're also here with Travis Worth. This is his two weeks of Worth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what's up, buddy? How are you doing, doing man? Uh, doing uh, really well. Uh, I appreciate you know this opportunity to kind of come on and, and share my thoughts. Um, uh, while I'm not apologist, an apologist or anything, I have a love and passion for the philosophy of religion and uh, looking into these deep, interesting questions. And um, that's one thing I really appreciate uh, Ben for is these deep conversations we have. And so, uh, you know, this I idea of like theism and value and what it uh, sort of entails, what it wouldn't entail uh, is a very interesting conversation. And he and I have been meaning to have a dialogue on the philosophy of religion anyway. So, yeah, it's a perfect opportunity. Hey, Travis, so, just so I know, are you contractually obligated at the start of every show to say, I have a passion for philosophy or religion? I've just noticed that you're kind of... Well, you, I, 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 I do say that, every time he says it. Well, um, I, I do... But, trying to be funny, but... No, but yeah. there's actually a reason I do that. Uh, so <laughs> I don't pretend to be like a, a credentials I don't have because I actually study atmospheric science. So I'm not a credentialed philosopher. I just, it, it's in my spare free time that I have a love and passion for that. And so that's why I, I usually say that. Just, you know, you study the air, Travis. Right on. So, so how's my, my fellow Virginian uh, been doing? I'm doing well. I've been working on a project for real atheology where we're doing uh a series on David Hume's dialogues considering na concerning natural religion. And so we're just going through and kind of doing a really deep dive into all 12 sections. And so I released section nine recently with uh, Dr. Joseph Campbell, who's a metaphysician. And so it was basically Hume's, how he interacts in the dialogues with um, the cosmological argument that would be offered by someone like Leibniz or Samuel Clark. And so it was a really fun time. And so I've been having a lot of fun with this project. Uh, but it's kind of nice to shift gears now and go to moral philosophy mm -hmm. um, to discuss that with Travis tonight. Yeah. Awesome, man. Dale, how was your uh, week, buddy? Um, yeah, I'd say um, pretty good, actually. It was nice to get a rest. Uh, so this is my first and only podcast this week. And uh, yeah, just um, talking to my brother and stuff. He's down. Uh, he's a trader. He's down in Tennessee right now visiting uh, in the U.S. And he sent me a picture because uh, he, uh, he won't be back. <laughs> well, <laughs> judging from this picture here, he's, he's not too impressed with the way you guys have your milk. Can you guys see that? No. It's not popping up. Maybe you got it. Someone's <laughs> got to bring it up. Man, it that ain't even like milk. <laughs> what is that? Oh, that's, just that's they, look, just because they throw a picture of a cow on it don't mean nothing, okay? <laughs> well, that's, this is what you guys got down in Tennessee. It's nothing compared to our milk bags. So We're going to have to talk to Dane about that. I've literally <laughs> never had one of those in my life. I've yeah. never seen them. <laughs> That's okay. not American. Right. <laughs> Tyler, how was your fourth? 
Bro, it was great. Like we took Kelsey to uh, go watch fireworks and she was more interested in YouTube videos than the fireworks. And so, you know what? I, next year, like I'm saving the money. Okay. <laughs> Period. I'm not. Nope. We're going to stay and watch YouTube. No, it was good though. It was good. She got to ride some rides. I posted some pictures on Facebook for everybody to see. And so she had a blast doing that though, but not, not a big firework girl. Yeah. You, uh, you, uh, getting the rest you need and spend the time with the wife. <laughs> You're funny. You're fun. I got a I got a 12 week pregnant wife. No, I'm not getting any rest <laughs> at all. Like I got to do everything. She's the one getting the rest, not me. No, 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 no. It's good. Uh, she's, she's doing, uh, she is getting a lot of rest though. Um, I'm getting more rest than I would have, um, you know, any other given week. So we do get to sleep in a little bit more. Um, but no, um, every, everything's going good on that. And she goes and gets her next doctor's, uh, checkup, uh, not an ultrasound this time. So the next one, it'll be an ultrasound. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, everything's going good with that. She Doppler, Great. she's got this Doppler bro. And she listens to the heartbeat like every day. And so it's cool to hear and see just the fluctuations in, in her heartbeat, like getting stronger and things like that as time goes on. So it's like a, it's real, it's really neat to see that working how, awesome. how it does. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, guys, I'm going to turn it over to you, Travis. I know you Hold on. have a, I got a question. Have these two weeks of worth been worthwhile oh oh definitely yeah okay. yeah no uh richard and i the faith right uh, <laughs> no we had a great discussion last week and i'm sure this will be uh equally great good right on so i'm gonna let you guys take it away i know you guys have an order you want to go in i know ben you said you might be going first travis told right. me okay yeah yeah, yeah so go. i'll go ahead and kind of open things up and just kind of set the stage um for what i think is going to be a an interesting discussion. So uh, I was invited to come on today to discuss theism and value, but so that's really broad. So I wanted to kind of narrow in that question a little more. And so I want to start with the question tonight, is God the best explanation of basic moral truths? And so to just kind of lay out some common ground, um, what I take objective morality to be is that there are basic truths about what is good and bad or right and wrong, independent of the attitudes of, of observers towards the objects of evaluation. So, for example, it's wrong to torture children for fun, regardless of what anyone thinks about it. If society approved of child torture, it would still be wrong. If I approved of child torture, it would still be wrong. And if God approved of it, it would still be wrong. So I have two basic objections that I want to make towards the affirmative answer to the question, is God the best explanation of basic moral truths? The first is that theologically based metaethical theories are not objectivist theories. So physical facts like the masses of certain atoms are objective, but something like funniness is not. Facts about our reactions to a joke constitute its funniness. Moral realists think moral wrongness is more like the mass of certain atoms than like the funniness of a joke. Even if the attitudes of subjects towards child torture changed, its morality would not. Child torture could, be, could not be right instead of wrong. Physical facts are not constitutionally dependent on any observer. If we concede moral facts depend on an observer, we concede they are not objective in the robust sense physical facts are. So my second objection to the affirmative answer to this question is facts about God cannot explain any basic moral truth. 
So I believe that basic moral truths are necessary, but that God only exists contingently. So God cannot explain basic moral truths. So in order to meet this objection, the theist is going to have to say something about how God is an explanation. So one of the questions we can ask is, how does God potentially explain something like moral goodness? And I want to say that it doesn't. Um, but now, why doesn't it? There's several options that the theist could take here. So the theist could say that God is by definition infinitely good, and so is the paradigm of perfect goodness. But the reply here is that God, the statement that God is good, would be trivial if it were true. To be a substantive claim, goodness must explain the normative status of God rather than God explaining the normative status of goodness. Other people have said that God is morally good by nature because he is loving, generous, faithful, and kind. Now, this looks like it might be a potential explanation, but it presupposes the goodness of love, generosity, faithfulness, and kindness. So it doesn't actually explain why these features are good. Those, good are what, those features are what explain why God is good. So another thing we can ask is, how does God potentially explain our duty to obey his commands? I want to say that it doesn't. Again, the theist has a couple replies here. The first is that we should obey God's commands because otherwise he will punish us. Now, this might be a prudential reason to obey God's commands, but are all basic moral explanations reducible to prudential reasons? I don't think so for reasons having to do with the autonomy of ethics, but that'll take us far too far astray from the discussion tonight. Another move that is available to the theist here is to say we should obey God's commands because command God commanded us to do so. Now, this seems circular on the face of it, but even conceding that it is a basic unexplained fact, then it is more plausible the basic, the most basic unexplained fact is child torture could not be morally right rather than God could not command us to torture children. All parties to this discussion can concede that child torture could not be right, and love could not be morally bad. But not all parties can concede what God could be like, what he could do, or whether or not he could exist at all. So the theist here has more brute, unexplained facts than the moral realist who says that these facts are independent of God. So, still, what we're left needing from the defender of a moral argument is some reason to think God must feature as part of a best explanation of basic moral truths. But what is an inference to the best explanation? Well, the philosopher C.S. Peirce claims we can understand an inference to the best explanation in a schema with three broad premises. The first being some surprising fact is observed. And the second premise being if some hypothesis were true, that fact would be a matter of course. Therefore, there is reason to suspect that this hypothesis is true. Now, I think this schema is more or less right. So what I have to say and what follows will take it for granted. To recap so far, my main contentions are that theologically based ethics are neither objectivist accounts of basic moral truths, nor do they satisfy the second lemma of this Piercean schema. So, to kind of formulize my objections here, first is the best explanation of basic moral truths is an objectivist account of them. Theologically based explanations of basic moral truths are not objectivist accounts. 
Therefore, theologically based explanations are not the best explanation of basic moral truths. If we were to change God's attitudes, then it then is what he is like, or we change God's responses to certain acts, like disproving of child torture or issuing commands not to torture children, then we change what the basic moral truths are. This is clearly a subjectivist account rather than a robustly objectivist one. Moving on to the Piercean schema, God is not the best explanation of basic moral truths unless basic moral truths are surprising given the hypothesis there is no God and a matter of course given God exists. But basic moral truths are not surprising given the hypothesis there is no God, nor are they a matter of course given the hypothesis God exists. Therefore, God is not the best explanation of basic moral truths. The crucial premise in each argument is their second premise, and both can be motivated with the Euthyphro dilemma. So let me expand on that. In, this, in that dialogue, Plato has his mouthpiece Socrates contemplate the nature of piety with another character, Euthyphro. As Euthyphro strains under Socrates' notorious lines of questioning, he offers thoughts on the nature of piety. He says, the pious is what all the gods love, and the opposite, what all the gods hate, is the impious. Euthyphro is claiming that what all pious things have in common is they are loved by the gods. But Socrates is not convinced. He then poses one of the most important ethical questions ever asked. He asks, is the pious loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is loved by the gods? Socrates will find both replies problematic for Euthyphro's claim, and concluding in the end that Euthyphro's notion of piety must be mistaken. If piety is whatever the gods love, and there is no reason that explains why the gods love these things rather than others, then what is pious is ultimately arbitrary meaning based on random choice or personal whim. Were the gods to love racism and hate compassion, then something like segregation would be pious, and something like feeding the hungry would be impious. Any view of piety with this implication is not an acceptable view for that reason. So what of the other horn of Euthyphro's dilemma? Well, if the gods love something because it is pious, then Euthyphro's claim is simply false. Whether or not the gods love something is not what makes it pious or impious. Piety on this option is independent of the love of the gods. The lesson of the Euthyphro is that Euthyphro's notion of piety is either arbitrary or it's false because piety is an objective matter. I think we can similarly apply this lesson to contemporary moral arguments, and the most popular being William Lane Craig's. So I'll start with William Lane Craig's view. Um, William Lane Craig makes a similar claim to Euthyphro's, though his view is more nuanced by modifying the traditional form of divine command theory. Craig view, Craig's view of moral obligation still retains the traditional idea that God's commands determine what is right and wrong, but he also maintains that God's nature is identical to moral goodness. William Lane Craig claims, God's nature is the moral standard determining good and bad. He is the paradigm for goodness. It will be helpful to rephrase claim, Craig's claim as the morally good is what resembles God's nature and the opposite, what does not resemble God's nature, is morally evil. Notice how much this rephrasing re resembles that of Euthyphro's claim about piety. What all morally good things have in common, according to Craig, is they resemble God's nature. But I think we should be as skeptical of Craig's view as Socrates was of Euthyphro's. We can ask, does the morally good resemble God's nature because it is morally good, or is it morally good because it resembles God's nature? Craig cannot concede the first horn of this dilemma because that would imply his view is false. 
So he must embrace the second horn while also avoiding the worry of moral arbitrariness. Craig cleverly attempts to do this with his philosophical sleight of hand. He insists this is somehow a false dilemma because God's nature is somehow identical with moral goodness or the good. Putting aside the unintelligibility of a concrete causal nature like God's being identical to an abstract acausal property such as goodness, it is hard to see how Craig's reply avoids the worry of moral arbitrariness. If there is no moral reason why God's nature is loving rather than hateful, then such character traits are morally arbitrary. There is no moral difference if God is hateful rather than loving, in which case hating your neighbor might be morally good and loving your neighbor might be morally evil. If moral goodness just is whatever God is like, then the claim that God is morally good is no longer a substantive moral claim. It merely states that God is whatever God is like. That's a trivially true but entirely devoid of any substantive moral content. In my view, Craig has not even begun to avoid the worry of arbitrariness. And worse still, he has reduced the theologically important claim that God is morally good to a trivial claim that gives us no information about what is God, God is like, nor, uh, nor as to what we should live up to. The upshot of this is that irreligious skeptics like myself have no good reason to concede to William Lane Craig moral goodness is best explained by God's commands nor his nature. One, because it's not an objectivist account, and two, it doesn't actually explain anything. Now, I think Travis's view differs in very important ways from Dr. Craig's, so I want to now turn it over to Travis to let him articulate in what ways his view attempts to sidestep my two objections of right. we need an objectivist account and we need some account that has an explanatory power. It makes some, it makes the observation mm. of basic moral, moral truths a matter of course, yeah. whereas it would be surprising if we supposed God does not exist. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Ben. I, I really appreciate that. I, I mean, I think uh, that's very valuable. And I think you bring up some, uh, really valuable concerns that the theist needs to take seriously. And so I'm just going to go through my notes here. This is basically going to be Josh Rasmussen's um, moral argument. It's uh, basically off the moral argument he lays out in is God the best explanation of things. And so I'm just going to run through that. And so what I think would be valuable to start off is a definition of terms. I'm going to be referring to a perfect foundation. And so to lay out what I mean by perfection here. There are two ways to see perfection. Through the first lens, we see what perfection lacks. Perfection lacks defects. We can define a defect as anything that detracts from a thing's value. As an example, a car with a broken radiator has a defect that detracts from its total value. The second lens is what perfection has. Perfection has value. In general, more value means more qualities that are more positive. The highest value has the most positive properties. I call the highest value absolute perfection. A perfect thing is the greatest, most valuable kind of thing. A perfect thing has no defects of any kind. It is purely positive. In other words, perfection implies supreme value. By pure actuality, the foundation lacks limits. By reason, therefore, the foundation lacks limits in value. The foundation has some value. For example, it has the power to produce you and I. And so a supreme foundation would have value without limits. So in short, we can define perfect as something that lacks defects and has supreme value. The foundation has no defect for a defect is a limit in some valuable positive respect and the foundation has no limit in value. And the foundation has supreme value because anything less 
would mark a limit in its total value. In this sense, the foundation is purely positive without any inner limit or imperfection, so it is perfect. From perfection with purely positive properties would also flow maximum cognitive power. So for short, I'm going to be referring to the foundation as a perfect fundamental mind. Now, given this backdrop, what I kind of like to lay out first is going to be in terms of our conscious experiences. What we experience by direct awareness, we have sensations or something that it's like to sense right and wrong, better and worse, good and bad. What Josh Rasmussen calls insights into our moral window. We can call these sensations axiological. It seems a very important philosophical question to ask, why does the world contain beings like us with these axiological sensations? While it can be easy for us to take the feelings of good and bad for granted, you know, because they're all too familiar to us, they're actually anything but trivial. We could easily imagine a world without any consciousness, we could easily imagine a world without any axiological sensations at all. For example, we could imagine a world where organisms can feel heat and cold, but could not feel good and bad. It is entirely possible that purely non-moral states could be the sole drivers of adaptation. But this is not the world that we find ourselves in. Interestingly, our world does contain the feelings of good and bad, right and wrong, virtue and vice. The feeling of good can be thought of as being part of an axiological landscape. As Ben and I are both moralists, we'll put the nature of the axiological landscape on the shelf as this is a point of agreement between us that moral truths are independent of our own personal judgment. According to both Ben and I, you know, to torture an infant for fun would be morally wrong, regardless of what anyone else uh, thinks about it. What I want to mainly focus on here is going to be one of the less controversial dimensions of the axiological landscape. And that's going to mainly be the observation that we have sensations, uh, moral sensations, the sensation that some things are truly good and praiseworthy while other things are truly bad and have gone wrong. Why are there beings like us with these moral sensations? Completely random evolution doesn't seem like the complete explanation. From what I understand, computer-based simulations of evolution have never produced creatures with any sense of right and wrong and have not even come close to it. I would say this is not at all surprising because without a moral foundation and a design plan, there would be no reason to expect the existence of morally sensitive beings to emerge. We could expect non-moral states to indefinitely continue producing non-moral states. With a fundamental mind, however, we have a clear mechanism to explain the aspects and dimensions of an axiological landscape. A foundational mind would have intentions and causal powers to aim for valuable themes, including morally sensitive beings in an axiological landscape. For the sake of simplicity, we can say that the simplest account of this mind's nature is that it's absolute perfection and lacks arbitrary limits, and thus contains the perfect rules for living and thinking. From this single root of value without limits would spring abstract moral principles and the intentional resources to produce beings capable of apprehending these principles. This would explain more than other meta-ethical theories with the least amount of additional theoretical content. As Josh Rasmussen states in How Reason Can Lead to God, this is a quote, in science, one way to investigate competing hypotheses is to consider how well these hypotheses predict observations. For example, certain climate change models that more clearly predicts actual observations are more likely to be true. Typically, the more accurate the predictions, the more probable the hypothesis. We can apply this test here to our moral foundation hypothesis. In consideration of what a moral foundation predicts, it would predict certain things flow from its moral nature. In particular, a moral nature includes basic moral qualities like goodness, value, and the power to distinguish right and wrong. 
The moral foundation has the resources of a fundamental mind as such. It has the power to aim for a certain sort of world. Like an artist can paint a picture, a moral mind can paint a morally textured universe with other moral beings in it. In fact, a morally textured universe is just the sort of thing we may expect a moral foundation to create. Without a moral foundation, by contrast, we face a prediction problem. Non-moral states don't predict a moral landscape with moral agents who can apprehend moral principles. And so a point of clarification here is that this is not a traditional moral argument for the conclusion that a moral standard requires a fundamental mind. Uh, this is specifically about the conditional expectations governed by the usual Bayesian formula. So we could let A be A equals there exists an axiological landscape that includes agents with some minimum axiological sensations. Let M equals there is a perfect fundamental mind. In such a case, the probability of A given M is greater than the probability of A given not M. Therefore, other things being equal, A supports M. And so uh, with that, Tyler, do you want to bring the slide up that we had? Okay, okay. so this is uh, how Josh kind of ties everything together with perfection. So uh, perfection unifies all the attributes of the foundation. Perfection is the deepest attribute from which all positive attributes flow. From this singular aspect arises the foundation's moral nature, to act perfectly, its mathematical nature, to reason perfectly, and its great power to fine-tune a world for people like you and me. Perfection accounts for the self-sufficiency of the foundation. A foundation that is not self-sufficient is not perfect, while a perfect foundation is self-sufficient. Every positive attribute flows from the foundation's perfect nature. Perfection also unifies the world. The world includes diverse dimensions like mental, material, moral, and mathematical. We can ask, why do these dimensions populate our world? Here is why. These diverse dimensions all flow from a single root. They all flow from pure perfection in the foundation. From pure perfection flows the perfect way of being, which is the foundation of all moral principles. From pure perfection flows perfect knowledge, which is the foundation of all principles of reason and mathematics. Moreover, a perfect mind has every reason to create a material world suitable for other minds. The perfection of the foundation then successfully predicts every dimension of the world. And so that's it. That'll be Josh's argument. Right on, guys. Well, I'm going to first, uh, Tyler, Dale, do you have any clarifying questions? Uh, clarifying. Um, I, I definitely have questions and stuff, but um, yeah. I, I just want if there's anything you need them to there, clear up before yes, we because I want them Travis. to dialogue and then we'll get questions later on. Yeah, sure. So, just one clarifying question, Travis. Um, sure. Um, so me and you were talking about this before the show, but just for mm -hmm. the sake of the audience, can, can you maybe just clarify exactly how, how your moral argument is different from someone like William Lane Craig's standard moral argument type deal? Yeah, so um, I'm going to need to bring that up. That's going to be when I uh, really uh, – so I have some notes that I'm going to go off that uh, addresses Ben's argument. I can go ahead and get, get into that now, but uh, if you want a short answer before yeah, I – think I, go, No, go ahead and lay that out. I think that would be okay, a really good okay. way to just kind of yeah. segue into – because I put Dr. Craig's view out there so that you could distinguish True. yours from okay. his. That seems like a pretty much the perfect place to start, I think. That, that's a great idea. Just give me one second to pull it up yeah. here. That's why I'm the host. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, so I'm going to read the notes I have here. Um, so one clarification, you know, philosophers like, you know, what Josh Rasmussen is wanting to make is that um, God's nature doesn't make values like goodness, compassion, justice, and so forth. Uh, Josh has even said that the Eutyphro dilemma persuaded him to think that it's a mistake to think that God's nature grounds morality even the principles that comprise God's own nature. Some things uh, are just intrinsically right or wrong, independently of what anyone thinks, says, or even is. So under Josh's account, God's nature doesn't make the principles of right and wrong. He would say that uh, a perfect nature contains, but does not make the principles of value, that all value and all principles of value flow from the single simple feature of perfection. And perfection itself is valuable in a basic way. Perfection isn't valuable because it's part of God's nature. Perfection is part of the foundation's nature because the foundation is supreme. Um, so there, there might be a depend. You know, he believes that nothing at all would exist if God didn't exist. But uh, he doesn't think that God uh, actually controls and, and makes these uh, moral principles what they are. So like to torture an infant for fun, being morally wrong is just bedrock in its own right. So that that's going to be a huge uh, area where they distinguish. But now, now Josh will say that you know he doesn't think that anything at all would exist if God didn't exist. But uh, that's where he's going to differ significantly from Craig. And so it that might be, be a good. Fair to say that Craig's argument is more is closer to a moral argument that tries to infer the existence of God from the fact that there are basic moral truths. And your argument yeah. is more like an argument from design that says that, look, there is a moral, there's moral order in the world. So and that yeah. moral order is more like, is a matter of course, given theism, but it's surprising given atheism. Well, sort of. It, it is uh, teleological, yes. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's very good to pick that up. <laughs> well, it, what, so what do you mean by teleological? And, yeah. I'm sorry? What do you mean by teleological? So te teleological can be kind of tricky here, especially because uh, you said earlier you used God as pure actuality. So when you say mm -hmm. teleological, are you referring to it in like this Aristotelian sense? Are you saying no? It, what I'm saying in a is neo-Aristotelian sense. What I'm saying is, uh, like I, I laid out, that God is absolute perfection. You know, would have reason that His perfect goodness would give Him motivation to, you know, create a morally textured universe with moral agents that. Uh, that he, he would pursue that value. So he would have uh, the intentionality to sort of bring that, that out given his goodness. Um, and then um, also uh, one thing that's going to be significant about this argument that, that kind of differs from Craig is it's going to be a lot more heavily focused on the epistemic uh, thing, the, the moral knowledge um, aspect I think is going to be. So, so Craig is arguing from moral ontology. He's saying that because yeah. of what there is in the world, that is a reason to think that God exists. Right. But and your so, argument. So, uh, uh, hang on, just make sure, sure that yeah. I have these contrast. Uh, so that's the first piece of the contrast here. Right. The second piece of it is that your argument is appealing to what we can know about the moral realm. And so it's our knowledge of certain facts within the um, moral domain, which is surprising given atheism, but is a matter of course given theism. Is that a fair way of comparing the two arguments as far as one is 
ontological, the other is epistemological. Is that a yeah, fair way to finish out that? It is because this is more about, uh, you know, it's more about the epistemic than the ontology. Um, and, you know, again, Josh is going to say that, you know, these uh, he uses the analogy of like moral truths being like uh, pillars in a castle. They're, they're, you know, the castle, you know, and the pillars are together. Uh, but God's nature, you know, it doesn't actually make the values what they are. They're just, you know, exist in a basic way. Whereas I think uh, Craig's view, you know, and, and it's what you have attention with is this idea that, you know, it's God's decision. Uh, that, that makes moral principles obtain. And so that's where it becomes arbitrary and subjective. Um, so. Okay. I still, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that uh, we can understand the differences between the argument here. Okay. So um, Dr. Craig is using a more anthropomorphic conception of God than someone like a classical theist would use. So God's, uh, this is the distinction between the theistic personalists and right. the classical theists who accept something like a doctrine of divine simplicity. Right. So Dr. Craig is going to want to say that, you know, look, God, it makes certain decisions. And those, if he were to decide what the moral truths depend mm -hmm. on him deciding one way rather than another or having some sort of nature rather than another. And the classical theist is going to want to avoid talk like this, theistic personalist talk. And so they're going to have this more mystical conception of God in where that God, um, God's ways are not our ways sort of thing. So, but um, this has two problems that arise immediately when we move away from Craig's anthropomorphic concept of God and move to this more mystical con concept of a God beyond our ways. We have a question of one, is this compatible or is this coherent? Is this concept of God one that legitimately says something coherent? Now, there can be doubts about this, especially if someone adopts something like a doctrine of divine simplicity. But let's put that to the side for now. We'll, if, we'll come back to, the, to it if we need to. The other worry is, what is the empirical content of this mystical view of God? So if, if God's ways are not our ways, then how are we making judgments about God's divine psychology? Um, I, Alvin Plantinga puts it this way. I think it's a really great way of putting it. He says, God is transcendent. His ways are not our ways. Right. His purposes are inscrutable. Can we really say how probable it is that God would create the vertebrate eye or fine tune the universe? Mm -hmm. Or in this case, create moral agents capable of knowing certain moral truths. Do we know enough about God to say what it, what this probability is, even within very wide limits? And I think this is a really good question because, so there's two kinds of probability that we could, we could say here. We could um, take a statistical probability, what some call it times called a physical probability. Um, a statistical probability um, takes uh the number of times like if you were to throw a dice or flip a coin a certain number of times the dice is going to have a limiting frequency of one out of six and the coins are going to have a limiting frequency of 
0.5. We're clearly not talking about a statistical frequency when we talk about the God probability of fine-tuning the universe or creating um, a moral, an axiological moral realm that uh, beings can have knowledge of. What we're talking about is a propensity, the propensity of this God to create this way rather than some other way. And I think we're entirely in the dark about what such a being would or would not do. So those are the two worries that arise once we shift yeah. to, to um, Travis's more mystical concept of God. We have to ask ourselves, is this coherent? And we have to ask ourselves, what does this predict? Now, I, yeah. if, if we want to get into it, I think there are issues of coherency. But I think the real, the more pressing issue, because we can quibble about coherencies, is what? How do we get empirical content from this um, hypothesis? How can we have any independent justification of what the propensity of God's w will is to do anything? Seems like theological skepticism kind of looms here, and I think mm. Plantinga articulates that theological yeah. skepticism really well. Okay, so uh, I have quite a bit to say here, Ben. I, I think you've misunderstood the argument. Uh, Tyler, can you bring the uh, that slide up again? Um, yeah, this is not mystical at all. This uh, Josh, it's very theistic personalist. Uh, in fact, he's often criticized for making God too personal, and it's actually panentheist. Uh, okay, so what we have here, it's going to be a perfect fundamental mind. Okay, and so one of the things that this is going to go by is what Swinburne calls the Dionysian principle that goodness is just diffusive of itself and thereby of being. So God as perfect goodness would have motivation to bring about and instantiate valuable states of affair in the moral, aesthetic, and alethic domains. We don't have to accurately predict exactly what he's going to do, but we can predict that he will uh, be motivated to bring about valuable states of affairs. And when we see something valuable, we know that God would have reason to bring it about. And so, uh, like he says here, perfection would unify the world. When we look at the diverse dim dimensions of mental, material, moral, and mathematical, and we ask why they populate our world, uh, they all flow from a single root. They all flow from pure perfection. So we could epistemically tease out from absolute perfection uh, the, the motivation uh, for God to want to bring this about. Uh, that God, it's God has a perfect fundamental mind. So it's it's not this mystical view where we have no idea. No, it's God is perfect goodness wanting to bring about valuable states of affairs. Uh, so that's that's one area where I, I would push back, and I would say I, I think that's a, a misunderstanding of, of Josh's argument. Okay, well, so that's one place where it's good that we could say okay. This mystical model of God is not going to help us here. Right. No, no, making a design I, I, argument I, or a moral argument. So we have right. to I agree. Have this yeah. anthropomorphic model. Awesome. So, yeah. but now a different worry is going to arise. So sure. as we move away from that mystical model of God and we move back towards the anthropomorphic model model of God, now we have a question of is fundamental reality perfect in the way that you said? No, and it doesn't now, need to be. Okay, well, so when you put the slide up, you, you were saying that perfection was the thing that holds all of yes. unity together. Yes. And you were also saying that perfection is what gives us the empirical content yes. of the, the theistic hypothesis. Okay, mm -hmm. so 
what I want to say here is that empirical content that comes with it is a double-edged sword okay. because you're now like going to get, yeah. you're going to have to get the, the problem of evil is going to arise. So yeah. the, let me say something I've, I've, now that I've put the problem of evil on the table, let me try to unpack that a little bit just so that for okay. the audience sake, because the question now becomes the thing that is, uh, has the empirical content for the hypotheses is the supposition that the, that the foundation is perfect. Now I thought Travis just said, ah, he doesn't need the supposition that the foundation is perfect. Well, no, I think the, the world, the world is perfect. No. So that's not, but no, we're talking about the empirical content of the hypothesis. What okay. makes, what makes it probable that we would see, observe X Rather than oh, why, yes, is the foundation because is we are yes. add, because we are adding the supposition that the foundation is perfect. Yes, but now this is where the problem of evil is going to arise. Right. So the problem of evil presents all forms of theism with both an in principle objection and a de facto one. So the in principle objection is often called a logical argument from evil. Um, and these arguments claim that the conjunction of certain justified beliefs logically entail there is no God. If there really is any supreme mind worthy of the title God, then we must allow that its power, wisdom, and goodness are infinite. I think Travis stressed that by saying it would have arbitrary limits otherwise. Yes. Um, by infinite goodness, we suppose that particular quality of moral character to prevent or eliminate all suffering so far as can be properly done. No. But it should be noticed that those natural processes of predation, starvation, and disease integrated in the biological evolution of, of human and non-human animals involve a great deal of suffering that someone of infinite power and wisdom could properly prevent or otherwise eliminate entirely. Therefore, it follows there is no such being as God. God might not be a potential explanation of anything, because such a being could not exist in any possible world with properly preventable suffering, and our world contains such suffering. Um, following the Lisbon earthquake, Voltaire wittily remarked, God's only excuse is that he doesn't exist. And that's basically an in-principle logical argument from evil. But there's, let's, let's suppose for the sake of argument, um, that either God's power, wisdom, or goodness are finite rather than infinite. They have an, some arbitrary limit. This might resolve that previous logical problem at, gr at a great theological cost, but does it avoid the de facto objection from evil? And I don't think it does. David Hume famously asked, is the world considered in general, and as it appears to us in this life, different from what a man or such a limited being would beforehand expect from a very powerful, wise, and benevolent deity? It must be strange prejudice to assert the contrary of evil. So Hume articulates an evidential argument from evil like this. Four hypotheses can be formed concerning the first causes of the universe, that they are endowed with perfect goodness, that they have perfect malice, that they are opposite and have both goodness and malice, that they have neither goodness nor malice. Mixed phenomena can never prove the two former unmixed principles and the uniformity and steadiness of general laws seem to oppose the third. The fourth, therefore, seems by far the most probable. That is that the first causes of the universe are neutral with regard to good and bad. So if we were to look at the world and infer what is God like, those inferences can either entail that there's no 
that the, the foundation is not perfect, or the most probable inference is that the foundation is neutral to good and bad, and so indifferent and not going to respond to our religious concerns. So that's the gap problem. Even if our background knowledge included a first cause and designer of the universe, we cannot infer the moral goodness or what Travis wants to uh, infer here, the moral perfection, um, because of our observations of facts about good and evil. We have no good reason to believe any prime mover or intelligent designer or foundation of the world cares about us in ways that would respond to our religious concerns, like caring about human affairs, responding to our prayers, defeating evil in the end, or promising salvation after death. However, laws of nature that are indifferent to good and evil are a matter of course, given naturalism. So in practice, good and evil confirm an indifferent universe or atheism and disconfirm a perfect foundation or what we're calling theism here. So I think I think I think that the the explanation, the moral explanation, is stuck between a rock and a hard place. If we have that more mystical concept of God, theological skepticism looms. But if we try to add empirical content by making a more anthropomorphic model, we run smack dab into the problem of evil, both its logical versions and its evidential versions, and that creates this gap problem. Okay. Um, was that it? Yeah. Okay. So uh, that was quite uh, quite extensive, and, and I appreciate you bringing up uh, the problem of evil. So just to clarify where, where we're at, the, the moral argument I, I presented was um, a bit misunderstood, that it, it's, it's saying that there's a perfect foundation that predicts this, and so in light of that, we went uh, apparently – to the problem of evil, uh, and we've kind of, I guess, if I would have known you were going to the problem of evil, I would have had my slides for that ready, but uh, that's okay. I can go most of it off the top of my head. Uh, so I hold well, the- well, no, So the original question, so you- well, No, you, you was, brought up was, the was problem. Perfect. You said that the foundation was perfect, but yeah, now, gonna, now the question is, why think that it's perfect? And I, I'm gonna, and you tried to bring up the problem of evil as a defeater for that. And uh, here's why I don't think that that works. Okay, so I, uh, it, it all comes down to our axiology, what sort of axio axiological view we hold, because we're looking at the foundation of axiology itself. And so my axiology is going to be following Joshua Sijuati, Trent Doherty, Marilyn McCord Adams, uh, John Schneider of a defeat condition. I would say that God's only moral uh, condition in authorizing suffering is to meet the defeat condition. And that's basically this idea where uh, evil uh, I wish I had my slides right. I could uh, bring it up, but uh, it's where evil will be integrated into a valuable composite whole and defeated so that God is authorized in permitting any evil that isn't indefeasible. So as long as he can defeat that evil uh, and make it, you know, valuable and non-regrettable to the agents on whole, such that it becomes non-regrettable and they come to appreciate the valuable part that it played in their life, then, um, then it doesn't count against the favor of God. So we go, we would go back to looking at the perfect foundation hypothesis and God would be uh, just in permitting these states of affairs to obtain if they are ultimately defeated with a higher value state than what would be had, had the evil not occurred. So given the defeat condition, uh, then I, I, that doesn't follow at all. We would have to see that these evils are in principle indefeasible. And unless that's demonstrated, the defeat condition um, doesn't, you know, 
would be a defeater for that. So I'm good on the moral argument, and uh, so far I'm good on the problem of evil, given that. So what I'd want to say here is that, so we're trying to craft a best explanation of some observation. Yes. But now we've added content to no. the, uh, the your hypothesis with this defeat condition. So that defeat condition isn't something that we had agreed on in the beginning of the dialectic. We got clear on whether the, the well, we didn't agree model on the of God... Well, so we, we didn't agree on the model of God being used, so mm -hmm. whether it was anthropomorphic or mystic. And so we moved to the mystic world, but there was no, there wasn't this additional axiological assumptions about so defeat conditions. Um, so I think that this is one way in which there's a, there, there is a theoretical cost here of inelegance. Um. So that the simplicity of the, hypothesis decreases, therefore the prior probability decreases because we've made the hypothesis more ad hoc in order uh, to avoid refutation. I don't think so. Uh, I, I think it can be argued that it's an entailment from absolute perfection. I think God's perfect goodness entails that he would naturally be inclined to defeat all evil and make it's in the pursuit of value because the defeat condition entails valuable states obtained. That's the way he pursues value. Part of the way he pursues value is through defeat. Um, so I don't see how that follows. Well, so it was, but so that, but this is content that something like a naturalistic or atheistic hypothesis does not have to make. There's no, there's, an, there's an asymmetry, but there's an asymmetry here in the sense that the atheist or naturalist can also have a concept of perfection, but doesn't need to add this extra appendage to the thesis, this defeat condition. But let's concede for the sake of argument that theism has this defeat condition built into it, and that this is a that this is a theoretical cost worth paying. We then have another I question. Don't, I of, don't grant uh, that it's a theoretical cost. I know. So uh, that's what I'm conceding is that okay. th that it it comes out in the wash. Okay. Um, but now we have this worry of whether there are certain evils that can even in principle be defeated. Okay. So someone who you mentioned, Marilyn McCord Adams. So she gives yeah. the example of horrendous sufferings. Yes. So it's not in, at all clear that God can defeat these evils in the end, in the mm -hmm. sense of justifying, allowing their permission. Now mm -hmm. you might want to say, well, God can compensate these people in an afterlife, mm -hmm. an infinite afterlife in a way that then mm -hmm. defeat and that defeats but that assumes that justification, that compensation justifies his not preventing the horrendous suffering in the first place. And I think that's just mm -hmm. wildly impossible. Just, yeah. Compensation is not justification. And God should not. This, so this goes back to that logical argument right. of evil and in principle objection. No, horrendous suffering is suffering that an omnipotent God can properly prevent. The, our deepest goods do not entail that we suffer horrendously. That's just not an essential fe feature of our deepest good. People can experience their deepest good without har suffering horrendously. So I don't think that this defeat condition, this, this theodicy being added to the theistic hypothesis actually works because I think there are certain evils that just cannot be defeated because they are intrinsically so horrendous. 
Okay, so um, and I appreciate you bringing up uh, compensation. That, that's a very important clarification uh, that's needed uh, in, in terms of defeat. It, it's not because I, I want to agree with you that, uh, you know, the example that's often used is like, let's say, you know, people come in and, and destroy your house, kick you out in the yard, then give you a million dollars. Well, you're compensated, but them destroying your house is still wrong, right? Uh, so, you know, this is that that compensation in that sense is wrong. But that's not what defeat is. So the going back to Marilyn McCord Adams, the uh, the example she uses uh, just as a possible scenario for a defeat of horrendous suffering is she would say that, you know, Christ also experienced horrendous suffering. So, uh, you know, these uh, agents will... Uh, have an intimate connection to Christ and they will see that their lives were on the whole valuable and they will share in, in his sufferings and have that intimate bond with him that will be so valuable to them that it will become non-regrettable. And while they wouldn't want it to happen again, they wouldn't wish it away either because it's part of what made them who they are in eternity, valuable to Christ. And that's just an example uh, of a way it could in principle be defeated. I've never heard of any indefeasible evil yet. Well, so I I think suffering horrendously is that sort of, so I think that, you know, people who are tortured and have dismembered um, by people who they they trust, trusted, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think anyone can ever look back on that and say that their life was for the better because of it. And the fact that someone else died on a cross is to me is morally irrelevant in, in the sense of justification for the, again, we're talking about a, an evil that an omnipotent God could have properly eliminated in the sense that there is no good in which could have come out of this um, in the sense that so, there is our deepest good just don't entail this. Like we can conceive of our deepest good and that's just not an entailment of it. Horrendous so, suffering. So part, part of can the, I, can there's, I interject there's a, real quick? Real quick though, I, I want to clarify this. Uh, there's a, a difference in axiology here because this axiology would say that what's most important to God is to create a saint fostering world. It's a world in which the highest virtues can be manifested and that God is more deepest than, good. Uh, where the highest virtues can, you know, like love, compassion, and so forth, where the highest virtues can be manifested, the strength already these Deepest things. goods. Yes, we're, we're on the, sa- we're on the okay. exact same page here. Okay. That's, okay. So where God can uh, create, you know, uh, the deepest goods and everything like, like you were saying. And um, what is most important to God is who we become in eternity, that that's more valuable than what we necessarily go through right now. Because uh, we're, when we're looking at the notion of defeat, we're looking at the agents on lifetime on the whole. We're not looking at some temporary time T we're looking at the agents on whole and with the notion of defeat, it will become non-regrettable to the agents, self-endorsing uh, to the agents. Uh, as that's what Marilyn McCord Adams, Joshua Sijwadi, and all of them have wrote in regards to horrendous suffering is that it becomes self-endorsing by the agents. While they wouldn't wish it again. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm challenging the plausibility of that. And it becomes I mean, like, like, and I haven't I mean, seen, are there really forms of I haven't seen any really... justification for that, though. But uh, but but uh, I just gave a, justif- a justification in the sense that I said that there there is this set of deepest goods. Like we can have a set of deep goods that are realizable. An entailment of those deepest goods does not include horrendous suffering. People can realize all of those deepest goods without suffering horrendously. So what that entails is that it is not logically necessary that we suffer horrendously to achieve those deepest goods. 
meaning there's something that God could have properly prevented so, so if he had the power. He has the power by, by our assumption if there's no arbitrary limits, God is his infinite power. So, so he can properly he can properly eliminate all horrendous suffering and everyone can still realize their deepest goods. So, that, those entailments right there entirely undercut the idea that no horrendous suffering is logically necessary for people to achieve these greater soul, you know, the you know, the, the souls that they have to achieve mm -hmm. that would be their deepest good. You have to maintain that that horrendous suffering is logically necessary for that, and that's just no, not possible. No, we don't ma maintain that it's logically necessary. But what we do maintain is that it will become self-endorsing by the agents. So, in, in, in kind of contradiction to what you're saying, so Trent Doherty lists like the fine-tuning of, of a virtue-producing world, and so there's a world that you know has this much suffering, more more intense, and everything. And he says that we find ourselves in the right type of world that has the right frequency and intensity to foster sainthood that uh god you know it's not just about our suffering it's about we're in the the uh fine finely tuned amount to produce saints uh that's Doherty's saint fostering thesis so again I, i'm i'm not seeing a, a problem here i can conceive of well, them, so, well, uh, no, because me, you're making a prediction your prediction is that i, I can see them becoming their horrendous suffering in the end well maybe I mean, it's, it's more valuable I, to them to become <laughs> Well, hold on, though. Maybe it's more valuable for them to become saints and to defeat that suffering. And they look back on it and say, well, actually, this is more valuable. I'm glad I went through this. It may be a better saint. So it's not I'm not entirely convinced that your thesis is, is an entailment. Um, well, no. So I think what need what you need as an entailment of your thesis is mm -hmm. that all of these people who suffer in uh, horrendously mm -hmm. in the end will look back and endorse their horrific suffering. So mm -hmm. people again, who are, are raped and tortured and dismembered right. will look back on that and endorse it. And I and think that's it's just a wildly it. implausible claim. And I, I mean, you want to say that this doesn't have any theoretical cost, but it absolutely has theoretical costs. I mean, well, this is a view that like, Certainly, the the right. secular moral realist is not going to have to have anything like this. I'm not hearing I'm not hearing anything other than personal disagreement. For for example, with with your scenario, I could just say, well, no, actually, a better, more plausible scenario instead of God just giving them the virtues without the suffering is they look back and are thankful for the suffering because it made them a saint, and uh, you know, it truly. But what? Truly but what? You, but you're saying that, but you you're not offering any independent justification. So you're saying, well, I just don't see any problem with it. It's not a matter of whether or not you see any problem with it. It's if there's well, no. I'm showing an, an example of how that. I'm showing an example of how that no, could, in principle, there, be there, defeated. There is no. So, in principle, but can it be de defeated in practice? So, you might be able to say you can say well, you got, maybe this is the case in principle. That's all we have to that's, say. That's Trent Doherty's thesis. All we have to but say I don't is think, again. But I, no, but I don't Trent think. All right, guys, <laughs> let each other finish. <laughs> <laughs> no, Trent Doherty has said that all we have to do is show that it is in principle defeasible. That's all we need for the defeat condition to go through. Well, then I just simply disagree with him. But he just doesn't understand the nature of of evidential arguments from evil, because okay. you, I don't think we're going to get anywhere okay, going. Yeah, because if you you can say that it's possible that God can defeat all these um, evils in the end, but that doesn't at all entail that it's probable. That God defeats all these evils in the end. Again, that's a that's a, no, that's a actually, he, probability that requires 
content, you have to justify that. And it's not going to do it with the content just built into theism. I, I think it is because uh, he will show from God's perfection that the best kind of world for God to create is a world that fosters saints. Did that and a world that fosters saints has, you know, uh, there's we can foster saints without horrendous suffering. Right. But it doesn't have in what Trent says is that it doesn't have the value that it does had the evil not occurred. That's the definition of defeat is that it. But you're have saying the that the world is more valuable by adding more horrendous stuff to it. No, what I'm saying is that <laughs> no, I, I'm, that's not what it's saying. Then. But yeah, it is because you're saying it. So I'm saying the point. world would no, be better that's not. without the horrendous suffering. You're saying that no, the world right would be better because there would be saints that come out of um, people suffering horrendously. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think the ends there justify the means. Yeah, that's, I'm sorry, my that's conversations the, usually go better than this. I don't know what <laughs> went wrong. Um, but, no, it's going good. I mean, you guys yeah. just disagree on a point, you know. Um, yeah, um, and, and this happens. This is this. Well, but he's well, right. if I would have known we were going to be doing the problem of evil, I would have brought on my slides for the problem of evil. Well, Travis, that, that, that's kind of a sneaky move. But well, Tra Travis, let me let let's switch it up a bit at this point. Then, kind of thing like you heard Ben's opening case. Is there something about his case that you want to discuss with him then, or just to change gears a bit? Um, I, I somewhat uh, agree with the idea that, uh, moral truths are just bedrock in their own right. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that, but, um, I, I, I don't know because I'm not uh, in favor of Craig's argument, but I'm also not convinced that Ben's ar argument successfully critiques, uh, Craig's argument, argument too. That's why I was asking if somebody else knew, I, I would just, I would just kind of let their arguments but um, I think it, it has been uh, made pretty clear that there is no problem with uh, so like um, the moral argument of, you know, a perfect fundamental mind would have axiological reasons to create uh, a moral world with moral agents who have moral sensations. And that's more probable given theism than naturalism. That's uncontroversial. Uh, and when it comes to uh, suffering, the defeat condition would say that any suffering that is allowed, God can permit it if it's overall defeated for the agents on hold. Uh, and of course, the afterlife is an entailment of theism. And so that's well, and, and I think that that's where I'm at. And I think there's well, that's have, evidentially strong. I have a probing question for both of you guys then. So okay. this was one, one of the questions I wrote down. Uh, because obviously I do go more for a William Lane Craig uh, notion myself. Um, and one of my things in terms of uh, moral values or principles, right? Uh, I kind of take a notion when it comes to aesthetic values, for example, I take a view called dispositional realism, which means it's kind of an in-between view of subjectivism and objectivism in the way that it's independent from will and arbitrary will and stuff like that. So it's, it's almost the same with moral values as well, right? So values do have to be, it doesn't make sense to me that values can just exist objectively as an abstract, uh, okay, someone's got to go soon. So uh, yeah, just very quickly then, since Travis has got to go, how does it make sense? It seems to me that values are inherently an experience, a qualia of significance, and that requires a subject. How does it make sense to say that morals are truly objective, independent of a person or the aspects of a person. So yeah, over to both of you guys. 
Yeah, um, I think they're basically just uh, necessary truths. And I think they so we're looking at, you know, there's an axiological foundation to reality. That's what I'm saying. This pure, pure perfection and from pure perfection flows the perfect way of being, which is sort of the foundation of all moral principles. And so as such, it would have axiological motivation to create other moral agents who can apprehend these moral principles in a moral arena. And, and so that's what we experience via direct awareness. Um, and, and so I, I think it just naturally flows from the perfection of the foundation. Yeah. So I think that basic uh, moral truths having to do with value and obligation are necessary truths as well, but they're more analogous to truths like in mathematics or logic or the modal domain about, you know, what is necessary and what is possible. And so I think that they actually don't have anything to do with subjects at all. So the robust objectivist wants to say that, look, you could have no subjects at all. And it would still be the case that pain was worse than pleasure, just in the same way that two plus two equals four, or that seven is a prime number, or that I could have had breakfast, um, or I could have skipped it, or a truth like we should accept the conclusions of valid arguments with true premises. So these are just primitive truths in a domain of inquiry, this domain of in inquiry being the normative. And so I think you can have non-moral normativity and I think you can have moral normativity. And so I think my view, um, the robust realist helps us understand both epistemic normativity and moral normativity. Whereas I think the theologically based one doesn't do such a great job explaining epistemic normativity. It might have some plausibility when applied to the moral domain because we associate things like moral obligations with certain commands. That's just one way we can conceive of normativity. But I don't think that that view extends very well to the epistemic domain of normativity of what we should believe, you know, based on like evidence. Do we have to believe evidence because God issues some command or because God's nature is the paradigm of evidence? Um, it doesn't really extend very well. So the scope of my view includes both non-moral normativity and moral normativity. So I, my view has more explanatory scope than any theologically based system of ethics that tries to explain basic moral truths. Awesome. Thanks to both of you guys for that. So yeah, Tyler, David, do you guys have any, like uh, Travis, I don't know when, when do you have to, to take off? Um, Pretty soon, I got that home repair that I need to get uh, everything going. And we had agreed out. to do like five minute closing, like wrap ups. Do we? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you, you go ahead since you went first. Yeah, yeah guys, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so I I, I want to just kind of, but <laughs> but uh, I know Travis has got to go. So um, we can stay and chat questions afterwards if you want. Um, so. Let me try to clear up because I think it was it was said that uh, bringing up the problem of evil is kind of of a sneaky move, but I don't think it's a sneaky move. I think it's a very relevant move, based on the implications of how we've conceived of our model of God. So if you remember, I, I thought that there was a mystical model of God on the table, or an anthropomorphic one, and so we we said it's not the mystical model. It had its own set of issues, but we can avoid those issues by moving to the anthropomorphic model. And so what I want to say is that, okay, if we're going to use an anthropomorphic model of God, if that's the feature 
that's going to be as part of our best explanation. If we're going to make an inference to the best explanation, now it matters what the prior probability and the posterior probability of theism is. And so we can't just piously attribute perfection to God. We have to justify independently that this perfect found this foundation is in fact perfect. It has goodness to its infinite degree. That's where the problem of evil and by extension the problem of divine hiddenness are going to come in. These are going to be reasons to think that, okay, even if we concede that there is some foundation of the world, we don't actually have any reason to think that it is partial to us, that it would respond to our religious concerns because of our observations about good and evil or non-resistant non-theists. And these present both logical problems and evidential ones, in principle objections, de facto ones. Um, and so like, this is a problem for inferring God as the best explanation of some fact. If we're uh, another thing we cleared up, it's not so much a traditional moral argument like William Lloyd Craig. It's more like an argument from design where we are trying to infer God from a moral order, from, from the fact that we, we see beings like us ordered in a way that they can apprehend moral truths. And so if we want to say that it's probable that God would create such beings, we need the supposition that God is good. That is the supposition that is undercut by the problem of evil. So I'm not just pulling it out of nowhere. I think it's a very important, if we're going to infer and make an inference to the best explanation, if we want to say that this is a matter of course, given theism, that's not so clear that it's just a matter of course because there's a problem of evil. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll go ahead and start. Um, when we had the phone call, it would have been nice to know, though, that uh, I should have like got my notes for the problem of evil because I have a ton of notes on defeat. And then when you got it, so I'm, I'm like scrambling to remember my my notes, and I'm I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just try and go off the top of my head. And uh, I'm like, yeah. So th that that did catch me off guard. I, I would have rather been prepared. So maybe another discussion when I have my notes together, and maybe we'll do another discussion on evil sometime. But uh, okay, so anyway, uh, to kind of go back to what my thesis is, is um, we're positive. It, it's simple, so it's only one kind. You know, it has both uh, both simplicities: uh, the number of things positive and the properties of things positive. It's just absolute perfection, and from uh, perfection would fl would flow the, uh, perfect goodness and uh, all these different attributes. That's what Josh's thesis is: is teasing out these attributes from absolute perfection would flow value without limits by definition, uh, perfect goodness and, and so forth. And that God as perfect goodness would have reason to create a moral world with other moral agents in it who can relate to him and make morally relevant decisions. That that is more probable given a perfect fundamental mind uh, than uh, a mindless universe, uh, a non-moral universe. Um, and I find that uncontroversial at all. And uh, when it comes to evil, um, so I think that Trent's uh, thesis is built into like Josh's argument from perfection that uh, perfect God, uh, the best kind of world that God can create is a world that fosters saints. And I think God holds a defeat condition with his creation. And so he uh, there's what Trent calls the fine tuning of a virtue producing world. You can see the video I did on axiology that really uh, covers this. 
you know, that God creates a world that fosters saints. And there are certain logical entailments with that that includes uh, suffering. But uh, Trent makes the argument that the amount, frequency, and distribution of suffering that we find in the world is uh, not so overwhelming uh, so as to, you know, overwhelm the majority of the agents. But there's a reasonable success a reasonable chance of success for the majority of agents to become saints and develop these virtues. And he also, you know, would say that, you know, given theism, the afterlife is an entailment of that hypothesis. And so the agents go on building uh, into the afterlife, building these virtues that the highest good for God is to create a world that fosters saints. And it begins here. And, you know, it does until these certain bad states of affairs obtain, but that's accountable. I, I can account for, for these uh, and, you know, even the, the hiddenness and, and things of that sort, it can be accounted for on defeat because on the defeat condition, in order for some X to be disconformatory, it would have to obtain on the whole. Uh, now, being tried to claim that, uh, you know, some agent, uh, you know, that it, it's just not worth it, uh, that, you know, they can have these values without having to do the suffering. But I challenge that because I can conceive of uh, them when they become saints, they will realize, no. The value of, of becoming a saint and earning this and like going through what I did in it, making me a better person, the triumph over tragedy will make, you know, it will have such a value to it uh, that it will make them better off for it and they will, it will be non-regrettable. And as Trent says that it's only uh, conceivable, you know, um, as far as that goes. So there is a bit of disagreement there, but I think that just about sums up the conversation. Right on, gentlemen. That was good. It was a good discussion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Dale, anything you want to say there? Uh, yeah. No, I just want to thank uh, both of, the, both of the, the guests. Obviously, Ben, I like him as an atheist, and Travis, uh, he, he's my brother from another mother. You know, he's <laughs> a philosophy of religion as well, and we're both Christians. Yeah. Um, we have differences. Um, you know, I I disagree with uh, Travis quite a lot on, on certain philosophical issues, and, yeah. and that's fine. You know, that's that's what it's all about. Uh, so yeah, thank you both for being on here and, and doing the show. Tyler's anything you want to add? I ain't got much to add. Um, interesting debate or discussion. Uh, I think it would be cool. Yeah. This was more like, this is more debate style. Yeah. 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 A little bit. It's yeah. like uh, an hour long cross exam. So I appreciate yeah. that with, with, with five minute opening statements from each of you. So yeah. I appreciate that. But I thought, I think it would be interesting just listening to him go back and forth. A little bit to either get uh josh was it uh, josh rasmussen right yeah josh or uh, trent dordry to come on the show and, and maybe explain the saint uh fostering method a yeah bit um, i think that'd be cool yeah you know that that show i i did uh last time uh covered uh trent dordry's uh saint fostering right, right yeah he's a very well accomplished and respected philosopher so he's not just putting out gibberish he knows what he's talking about sure so trent if you're watching this man hit me up yeah. faith and alter yeah. he's, he's a like well-respected philosopher Let's talk about getting you on the show. But other than that, I thought it was a good discussion. I'll have to go back and watch it, you know, so I can follow along. Philosophy of religion. Philosophy in general is not my area of expertise, and I'm not even going to pretend like it is. So I'll have to go <laughs> check it out a little bit. But uh, but good job, Ben. Good job, Travis. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, guys, uh, just a real quick, uh, Ben, if you want to just plug yourself real quick, plug, plug your website and everything for us. Yeah, so I'm the host, uh, one of the hosts of Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. Um, my co-host Justin Schieber and I explore questions in the philosophy of religion from non-theist perspectives, and we try to see what all we can contribute to discussions in the philosophy of religion 
by um, offering uh, defenses both of naturalism and alternative models of God. Awesome. And Travis, you want to plug anything? Um, yeah, uh, I don't have my book on me. Uh, oh, yeah, I do. Right here. Uh, so you can see this. Uh, the Inner Witness of the Holy Spirit. It's available on Amazon. So what I did and what I, I'm really starting to get into is, uh, you know, I have a love for Christian philosophy. Uh, and, and instead of doing like apologetics and things like that, what I want to do is sort of translate Christian philosophy into devotionals. So I wrote this, you know, uh, there's some concepts like uh, axiology, uh, the argument from religious experience and certain philosophical concepts that I wanted to sort of translate into uh, devotionals. And so that's what I did here. And I'm actually going to be working on another one uh, later this year. So, yeah. Awesome. 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 Well, guys, again, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. We appreciate the discussion. And Dale has something to say. He's got his fingers going there. So, no, I just because while I have tra both Travis and Ben here, especially Ben, because he's doing a lot of work on miracles, mm -hmm. on the 28th, I'm doing a, a debate with an atheist, Jordan from Reason to Doubt, who's another guy. Oh, I, yeah, I know him. He's another great atheist and stuff. So we're going to be debating uh, how do how do we identify miracles? And I'm going to be kind of submitting my unique thesis. So if it's stupid, it's my fault. But I think that we can look at miracles. Forget the supernatural, natural stuff. That that's irrelevant. It's we can identify this as an intelligently designed event. Are there the fulfillment of specified complexity in these events? And that's how we identify miracles. So can I ask you something? Can I ask yeah. you something, Dale? With, with that, uh, and Ben may, may know too, because uh, I know you've worked, worked on miracles. Like for like me, uh, <clears throat> so as an Eastern Orthodox, I'm a panentheist because uh, I hold the essence and energies. I, I think God is, uh, you know, outside, but He's also everywhere within creation. There's no separation between God and the world. So I'm wondering if that would have any impact on like the way we understand miracles. If there's like, you know, because it's not just that God is transcendent, but He's everywhere within creation. So I wonder if that would have any explanatory difference when we look at like laws of nature miracles or would it be the same scenario um it could i think it would given pedantism i i think regardless because you know my my mechanism it, it doesn't speak about well what is the mechanism is it some kind of supernatural thing or is it some well yeah usually it's about laws of nature and how god interacts yeah for, for me it's more about kind of can we identify God's intelligent design in uh, this event's occurrence or not? Um, yeah, so it, it can kind of be independent of, of mechanism questions. So, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, if you well, guys check that out, I love it. So I'll shut up and over to yeah. you, Dave. <laughs> well, guys, again, uh, thank you for coming on. Um, next week, guys, we've got an open mic night. It's We're, we're bringing it back. You know, we had a, such a great time doing it over the years that – you know, we said, hey, we haven't done it in a long time. Let's bring it back. So join us for that. Tyler, take us home one more time this month. Good night. God bless. Stay like Christ.
don't know, 